And we're going to start the study of the bones. Last uh, chapter was about overview of the skeletal tissue. We saw some histology, uh, description of long bones, how the bone develops, and some terminology. Now we're going more straight to the study of the skeleton, the study of the bones, one by one. And the goal here is to know the name know the names of every single bone in our body. Now, how many bones do we have? 206? 205? 6? Doesn't make a difference to me. As long as you remember the names of them. I'm not going to ask how many bones uh, are in the body. What I'm going to ask is, what's the name of this bone? I'll show you a bone you should be able to say. Um, for the, for the effects of this part, um, uh, in the lecture we're going to study every single bone and how we describe all the surfaces of the bones and what are they for, who they connect to. And in the lab, I'm going to give you a list of bones because we actually skipped some of them in the, in the lab uh, for practical purposes. And every single bone, if you have seen the lab manual, they, and in the, in the textbook also, they show you every single bone. And every single bone has like a many labels of small things and projections. There are like 20, 30 names per bone. So we're not going to do all of them. I'm going to give you a list that contains the name of a bone, like let's say the humerus. And then a list of the most relevant bone markings. There will be like five or six perhaps. Still, it's a lot but that's what the lab is for. So you spend the time identifying the bones, identifying all these bone markings. And I say relevant because um, these are things that are used actually. When we give an injection, for instance, here in the deltoid, like the shots, immunizations, uh, the technique to apply this injection says, touch the acromion. Well, the acromion is a bone marking that belongs to the scapula. And it's this flat, bony surface that we have up here. For instance, that's one of the things that we should study. In the scapula, we should be able to identify and remember the relevance of the acromion, because later we'll mention that. The anterior superior iliac spine is a bone marking of the pelvic bone, which is very used for physical examination, for determining the regions that we have studied, the right iliac, right hypochondriac, all that. Well, those are bony markings that are actually used as references. So the list is made uh, with, that, with that approach. Uh, I'm going to post a list so you can prepare for We're going to do this in next week. Today, uh, this week in the lab, we are going to do the overview. We're going to see the bones, some bones, identify parts of the bones, see the histology of the bone with models and slides. The next week, we're going to start getting the bones. We're going to start with the skull. And um, then it's when you need to know, I mean, identify all the bones, the bone markings, and spend time doing that. The lab exams will be returned today for the Tuesday group and Thursday for the Thursday group. And um, let's start with types of bones. This is another thing that may be tricky at the beginning because some bones, they have clearly, they clearly have a, a shape that 
fits into some particular type. But some other bonds are not actually so clear. But this classification is intended with the purpose to get oriented instead of uh, labeling each bone and uh, make a strict list of different types of bones. But get oriented, get familiar with different shapes of the bones. For instance, the humerus, which is the bone of the arm, very clear, is a long bone. And we have studied all the parts of the long bone, we are getting familiar with all the parts. Other classification um, are flat bones. Flat bones like the sternum, also known as the breastbone, which we know that is developed by intramembrane ossification. Then we have short bones, like bones of the wrist. In the wrist, we'll see that there are eight small bones, short. They have a cuboidal shape, and that's why they fit into this classification of short bones. They are not flat, they are not long, but we call them short. Irregular. Other bones that don't fit completely in one of the categories, they are usually classified as irregular bone, meaning that there are parts like the vertebrae, there are parts like the body of the vertebrae, which may be described as short, but then you go to the other part of the vertebrae and those aspects are flat. So it's flat or it's short, it's an irregular bone. It has different aspects of the different types. And uh, one particular type of bone here is the patella or kneecap, which is classified as sesamoid, a sesamoid bone. A sesamoid bone means that it is surrounded by tendon. It is actually in the middle of a tendon. And we'll see the definition and some other examples of these sesamoid bones. So what follows are some descriptions of some bones, like fitting into these categories, like long bones, the humerus, we saw that. All the bones of the limbs are long. Humerus, radius, ulna, which belong to the forearm, the femur of the thigh, the tibia, the fibula in the leg, all those are long bones. Short bones, the best example is the bones of the, uh, of, of the wrist, the cube-shaped. Not only the wrist, but also in the ankle. In the ankle, we have this cuboidal shape, trapezoid shape uh, of these uh, short bones. And here we see the patella or kneecap classified under short because if we see the shape, it fits. It's a short bone, the kneecap or patella. But since the patella is in the middle of a tendon, it is also classified as a sesamoid bone. And then we have flat bones, sternum or breastbone, the skull bones, all of them are flat. Irregular, the vertebrae are the best example of irregular bones, but also the hip bones, the pelvic bones. Irregular because some part is flat, some other parts look like 
short bones. And here is an example of a sesamoid bones. Sesamoid bones, the best example, as we say here, is a patella or knee cap. And the point of being in the tendon is that they're usually in places where these tendons are subject to a lot of friction, a lot of movement, and they are there to protect the tendon, to provide a point of support or protection. And of course, they are subject to fractures. The kneecap or patella can be fractured or broken uh, when there's a lot of uh, tension or subject to excessive stress. The patella is one example, but there are other examples of sesamoid bones, like in this particular part of the foot where we see the phalanges of the first uh, toe. It has tendons which send some small muscles there in the plant, and these tendons are in constant friction. Imagine this particular joint, that is the point of contact when we walk. That's one of the points that get in contact with the floor. And constantly under friction, so those tendons need more support, more protection. We find two small bones there in each tendon, in the middle of the tendon, and we call them sesamoid bones. We also have them in the fingers. Not everyone, but some people have more than others in some of the tendons of the fingers. We will find very small bones, uh, and we call them sesamoid bones, independently of where they are. Then we bring a special type of bone, which is called sutural, sutural bone. Sutural bone comes from the name suture, and we call suture to this connection in between two skull bones. The skull has different bones and all of them are connected to each other and we can see lines of connection like this one right here or this one. Those are lines of connections. And these bones are called sutural because they are small pieces, like small patches of bones that fit in between those connections, and that's why it's called sutural bones, like extra plates. This is not constant. You can see them in some of the skulls we have, not all of them. Uh, it may be variable in different, in different subjects. Now we see a photograph of this. You can see in number six is one of the sutural bones. And there are two more next to them here and here. Those two are sutural bones. Well, that was about the classification of the bones by the shape and by their nature. Now, next part is, as I was saying at the beginning, each individual bone has many surfaces, projections, little parts, holes, um, grooves, and they are called in general bone markings or bone features.
What are they for? Well, they serve some purpose. There's something uh, related to them, some function associated with uh, specific bone markings. We can divide it in two major types, depressions and openings and processes. Openings like holes. We give them some particular name to the hole. It's called, it's called a foramen. Uh, holes for what? For blood vessels. Blood vessels and nerves. Remember last time we talked about the bones in general, the long bones, and we saw a, a blood vessel entering into the bone, the nutrient artery. So there is a hole in all bones uh, that serves the entrance of blood vessels. Depressions, like small uh, spaces or uh, places for connection with other bones. And if we talk about connection between two bones, that's a joint. We call that joint. Questions? I think we should turn off the lights. Make it better. Yes, question. Foramen, F-O-R-A-M-E-N, foramen. And the processes, which stands for projections. They are projections, little bumps, outgrowths from the bone. Mostly they are for attachment points. Attachment points for ligaments and tendons, and the tendons connect to muscles. Here we have examples of foramen. A foramen is an opening where usually we see blood vessels through it. Blood vessels or maybe nerves. And actually, the, uh, the, the translation of foramen is just hole. Instead of hole, we use a foramen. That's the Latin word for hole. And if we talk about many foramen, like many holes, we say foramina. So foramen is singular word, and foramina is the plural word. We have an example of vertebral foramen, or foramen. That's located in the vertebrae. The vertebral column, imagine there are like 30 something vertebrae, one on top of the other. And each individual vertebrae has a foramen. When you put one on top of the other, you have like a, like a duct, like a canal. So that's where the spinal cord is. So in this vertebral foramen, we see the spinal cord and nervous structure. Or if we see the vertebral column from the lateral view, we will see a foramen here. For what? For the exit of nerves. Because they come from the spinal cord. This is a place where we usually hear about someone having a pinched nerve in the back in the vertebral column where this intervertebral foramen is usually the one that gets smaller or in some way it compresses against the nerve that is going through that uh, opening.
And there are many foramina in the skull, in the skull. And that's one of the things that you will spend probably more time in the lab identifying all these little holes in the skull. This is a view of the cranium, open cranium. And we see labels here, the, for, the foramen rotundum, the foramen spinosum, foramen lacerum, foramen oval, foramen magnum. Each of these foramina is for something, for a blood vessel, from a nerve, from a specific nerve coming out of the brain into the face, uh, or muscles of the face, or senses, the optic nerve, the auditory nerve. We'll see that when we get to that point and describe every single foramina and uh, talk about the purpose of it. The foramic magnum is one that is huge, it's a big hole. What is that for? Well, that's a connection of the brain with the spinal cord. That's how the spinal cord connects to the brain. Another point, we have central nervous system structures like the medulla oblongata connecting to the spinal cord. So that's what the foramina are, holes. Holes for usually blood vessels or nerves. And in terms of the processes, we have different types of processes. One of them is called condyle. The condyle is a round, it's a large round surface. And is usually for a joint. It usually participates in an articulation or joint. Like the condyles that the humerus have, uh, humerus has for connection with radius and ulna from the forearm arm and forearm connecting that way. The humerus have two condyles, which are round surfaces that will articulate with the bones of the forearm. And these condyles of the humerus, they have specific names. We'll include them in the list. They are called the trochlea and the capitulum. The trochlea will connect to the ulna and the capitulum will connect to the radius. And in the same way, there are condyles in the femur, the thigh bone, connecting to the tibia from the leg. Some of these bones, they have uh, another process that is right above, right above the condyle. And they are called epicondyle. Prefix epi means above. And it's not that big, it's a small, it's a small process, usually on top of the condyles. Like the humerus, that we see here, there are two epicondyles, the medial epicondyle and the lateral epicondyle. They're going to be included in the list when we get to these bones because the medial epicondyle is this bony prominence that we see here in the elbow, and we can easily touch that's what we commonly call the funny bone when we hit against the table. That's the medial epicondyle of the humerus. And if you go to this other side, lateral epicondyle, remember your anatomical position, lateral epicondyle will be right here. And they are important for attachment of muscles. Remember we said processes are usually for attachment of tendons and ligaments. Fossa. The fossa... Uh, 
fits into the into the category of depressions and openings. And the fossa is a space. It's a space um, located in some bones, such shallow depressions. That's how it's defined. And there is a fossa in the humerus called the olecranon fossa, which is in the humerus about posterior. We're not able to feel it here because it's filled up with another bone of the ulna here, but it's a space where the ulna engages and gets really locked when we straighten our upper limb. And here we have a, a closer look to the elbow. This is a right elbow, anterior view. So we have the humerus on top. The condyles for the humerus are the capitulum and the trochlea. And as I say, the trochlea connects to the ulna and the capitulum to the radius. We see the condyles, medial epicondyle and the lateral epicondyle, which are right above the condyles. And a fossa here called coronoid fossa, which is a shallow depression of the humerus in that point. And that is a space where this ulna will fit when we make this movement, flexion. We flex the forearm, or the elbow like this, or the ulna will fit into that fossa. That's the reason why it's there. Continue with the projections. There are more different types of processes or projections. Another one is called a tubercle. A tubercle is a projection, but it's small. Good example of a tubercle is the pubic bone. Pelvic bone, anteriorly, the pubic bone. It has a very small projection, anteriorly, and it's called the pubic tubercle. The other type of uh, process is called tuberosity. And tuberosity is a little bit larger than the tubercle. An example is the tibial tuberosity, which is the bony prominence that we have in the leg, right about or right below the knee. We can feel it. It's a prominence that is a, a tibial tuberosity. Bless you. And here we have uh, highlighted the tibial tuberosity in a real tibia and also a picture of the pelvic bone where we can see the pubic tubercle, which is right here, pubic tubercle. It's a smaller projection. Now, you may be wondering, how do I tell if it's a tubercle or tuberosity or condyle? Or, well, all these are well-defined. What we're doing is just explaining why they use the type of word and defining. We're not going to be 
uh, asked to say, is this a tuberosity or a tubercle? All of these are well described and they are specific, there are specific labels for all these bone markings. But you should be able to notice once you see the, the bone and the name of the bone markings, if, uh, what kind of process or projection it is. And still more, meatus. The meatus is a tube-like canal, like the one we have in the ear. The external auditory canal is a meatus because if you see the skull, you will see it, like a tube getting inside. Well, that's called a meatus, external auditory meatus. And trochanter, it's another process, type of process, that are really large projections, really large bony projections, like the ones we have in the femur, and they are called the greater trochanter. The greater trochanter is a very large prominence and we can easily touch below our pelvic bones in the beginning of the thigh, lateral, that is called the greater trochanter. And it's very thick and big because it's attaching muscles that are very powerful, like the gluteus maximus. Muscles from the uh, gluteal region and the beginning of the thigh. Very powerful muscles there. Bless you. And there's even more. These tables are description of other types of bone markings, classification, surface markings, like fissure, like foramen, which means holes, fossa, sulcus is one that we didn't describe, sulcus, that stands for groove. As I say, don't, don't get much stressed out trying to find fossa, sulcus, and differentiated, all of them, they have been well described. Like the coronoid fossa of the, of the humerus, intertubercular sulcus of the humerus. The best way to study this is to read the list, the name of the bones, the bone markings, and see. This is called coronoid fossa. Identify, yeah, it's a fossa. That's it. And besides condyle, we have facet, which is a flat surface that serves connection with other bones, like the vertebrae. When they go one on top of the other, there are some surfaces that fit in this way, flat, flat to flat like this. And you can clearly see that it's like a plate, a surface for connection. Crest, line, Spinous process, and we have this table with examples. We'll see some of this today in the lab. I'll get some bones so you can uh, have an overview of some of them and classify them short, long, uh, identify some bone markings uh, related to these uh, features that we just described. Questions to this point? Now let's get into the study of the bones. We're going to study one by one, all the bones one by one, and making some highlightings of bone markings.
Well, the skeleton is studied, dividing it into two parts or regions. One of them is called axial skeleton, and the other part of the skeleton is called appendicular skeleton. You see uh, all the bones that are part of the axial have a blue color, and uh, the light yellow is showing the appendicular skeleton. Appendicular means limbs, actually. Upper limb, lower limb, they are part of the appendicular skeleton. And axial, cranium, the skull, vertebral column, ribs, and um, sternum. So let's start with the axial skeleton. The axial skeleton is comprised by all the bones in the longitudinal axis, in the midline, including skull, hyoid bone, which is a single lonely bone that we have in the base of the tongue, the ribs, sternum, and all the bones of the vertebral column. And the appendicular skeleton, upper, and lower limbs, but also the bones that connect to the axial skeleton, like if you see in the picture here, the pelvic bone, the hip bone, <laughs> is part of the appendicular skeleton, it's like this, all that is appendicular skeleton. And the clavicle here is also part of the appendicular skeleton a different color. Only the blue bones are axial skeleton. The clavicle connects upper limb with the axial, so that belongs to the appendicular skeleton. Skull, vertebral column, ribs, and sternum. We're going to study them in that order. In that order. And let's start with the bones of the skull. Bones of the skull are grouped in two, two categories. Cranial bones and facial bones. We can even trace a line easily here and kind of divide what is facial bones and cranial bones. Unfortunately, they are not colored like the diagram here. That would be too easy. Even though we have some models like this with color, color bones. So that's useful at the beginning, so you can, and they work like a puzzle. So you can just assemble and disassemble it and play a little bit with it and get it familiar. But then you will see the real bones and they're not colored at all. There are eight cranial bones and 14 facial bones. More important than remember the number is to remember the arrangement and the names and the fact that some of the cranial bones are paired and some are single. Like the ones that are paired are the parietal bone, temporal bone, so we have left and right. But the other ones, I said only one, it's only one. There's no right or left, there's only one bone. Frontal, occipital, sphenoid, and ethmoid. Same 
for the facial bones, most of them are paired, as you see here. You can see left and right. Only two are single, the mandible and the vomer. The rest, they are paired. So that's the first thing. Starting with the skull bones or cranial bones. The skull has to be studied in two ways. One, with the whole thing without opening, so you can see all the bones around, identify every single one where they are located, and then open, like opening a can or a lid. Actually, we cut the, uh, the skull so we can see inside. Inside there are more other structures that belong to every single bone. And the other way to study is by individual bones. So we just disarticulate the whole skull and we get individual bones, temporal, frontal, occipital, and so on. So if we have a, an anterior view, this is what we will see. The frontal bone, which is part of the forehead, in blue here. From an anterior view, this is the bone that we see mostly. We don't get to see much the other bones of the skull. We see a little bit of parietal bone, some sphenoid and temporal in both sides. But they are better seen from a lateral view. The ethmoid bone, the ethmoid bone is a bone that cannot be seen from outside. The ethmoid bone is inside here, behind the uh, nasal bridge, in the very center part of your head. So it cannot be seen in, uh, in the whole skull. You have to or disarticulate the, the skull bones or make sections like sagittal section or transverse sections. Here we see a, a lateral view, a lateral view of the skull where we see the frontal bone. Now we see the parietal bone much better. And how far the frontal bone goes? The frontal bone goes almost up to here. Almost, almost to the half of your head, the very top of your head right here. And you can tell by the picture, and you can also make the correlation with yourself. And then the parietal bone covers the rest of the head. So this part right here is mostly parietal bone. And then in the very back, the occipital bone. If you keep passing your finger here behind your head, you will find a bony prominence in the very back. That is the occipital bone. You're touching this part right here. Temporal bone is where the ear is, the auditory canal that belongs to the temporal bone. And this bony thing that we find here is part of the temporal bone also. Sphenoid bone is a very important bone because it crosses from right to left. It's like a bridge. It's like, a, like an arch that is uh, supporting the, the, other, the, other skull, the other skull bones. But from the lateral view of the skull, we can see a little bit of it. Here is sphenoid bone, like a green rectangle. And that's this part right here. That's exactly where, you know, you can aim if you want to do this. And coincidentally, and you will see that in the lab when you see this bone, this part is very thin, very, very thin. 
is the weakest part of the skull actually here. There are many, uh, uh, many reports in sports especially of people having skull fractures, especially in soccer when they jump to get the ball and instead of hitting the ball, hit someone else's head and they have a fracture of the skull. Right here, this phenoid is the one that breaks easily in those situations. And you cannot put a cast here. It's a different type of treatment. Yeah. What's the purpose of it being thin and, thin and right there? Yeah, it's, uh, the point of this phenoid is to support the rest of the bones. So you will see this phenoid crosses from side to side. It's only one bone. It's like a bridge that maintains. You see, have you seen this uh, structure like bridges? Like they put like an arch here. Uh, that supports the weight of the whole bridge, exactly the same. This phenol is kind of like that. And uh, the fact that this is weak, I mean, it's just uh, coincidental because it's not, it doesn't make sense to have a bone that is weak. But it's just a very small part here uh, in the lateral aspect of the skull. Another way to study the skull is making sections. And this is a mid-sagittal, mid-sagittal section. So it goes in this way, the very center, we make a cut, and we can see the bones now inside the cranial cavity and how they attach to each other and articulate uh, to make this space called the cranial cavity. If we see the skull from the inferior aspect, we can appreciate other parts of bone. And from an inferior view, what we mostly see is the occipital bone. The occipital bone. And it connects anteriorly. If you notice here, this is the, the, the connection of the occipital bone to the back of the mouth. So it's covering all this and getting deep, actually, into the, uh, the center of the head. In both sides, we see the temporal bone in red here. And letter B, which already saw that marking called the foramic magnum. Foramic magnum, that hole, that's where the spinal cord comes out of the cranial cavity, uh, connecting to the brain. We see the sphenoid bone here in blue. All this is a sphenoid bone. And from the inferior view, we can see that it's actually crossing from one side to the other side. We see another view from inside the skull also. This is what we call the base of the skull. This is when we get the skull and we make a transverse section on the very top and we open it just opening the lid here and removing this part and seeing inside we get this view we can see the different colors for different bones like the yellow for frontal bone like the brown for occipital all that is green for parietal bone and the orange for temporal bone and how they participate in the formation of this cavity. And the sphenoid bone, now we can see the sphenoid bone completely. The sphenoid bone is here 
crossing from side to side and it's actually connecting to every other single bone. Look at the sphenoid, it's connecting to the frontal. The sphenoid connecting to the temporal. The sphenoid connecting to the parietal and even the occipital. So every single bone is connecting to the sphenoid bone. That's why we say there's a support for the other skull bones. And the sphenoid bone is the one that has all these foramina that we will see in other pictures. Foramen oval, foramen rotundum, all of them for blood vessels and nerves coming out. We can see a little bit of ethmoid bone if we see from inside the cavity and it's mostly anterior. This area right here belongs to the ethmoid bone. Just a little portion of, the, of this bone. Now going more to the sutures. The sutures are connections. Connections between two skull bones, two or more skull bones. But there are some of these sutures that have specific names. And like frontal bone connecting to the parietal bone, or parietal bones because there are two, is called the coronal suture. It's actually like this, here in the middle of the head, on top of the head, frontal with parietal. Lambdoidal suture that connects occipital with parietal. Squamous suture, this, that connects temporal with parietal bone. See the rectangle of the sphenoid bone here in green? Well, actually, we don't give names to the connection of the sphenoid with the frontal, like this, uh, like these sutures. We consider these major sutures with specific names. This is from a lateral view. Lambdoidal, coronal, and squamous sutures. But now, if we see it, from the top, superior view, then we'll see frontal bone, coronal suture, connecting frontal bone with the two parietal bones. And the suture connecting both parietal bones, right and left, that is called the sagittal suture. It makes sense, this is the sagittal line. Sagittal suture connecting both parietal bones in the very center or medial plane of the body. And we see a little bit of the lambdoid suture where the parietal bones connect to the occipital bone. Now, these bones develop by intramembranous ossification. We studied that last time. So during the development, fetal stage mostly, this is the picture that we see. Right after birth, still, these skull bones are not fused completely. There's still membranes. There's still membranes in those spaces that later will be the sutures. The sutures are features of adults adult skulls. When we grow up and growth is complete, these bones will fuse to each other. 
it won't grow more. They are like completely fused. You cannot add more volume or space inside the, the cranium. But after birth, during development, fetal stage, and after birth, right after birth, we see uh, membranes still. We don't see sutures. And in some places, we see like spaces. And we call them fontanelles. That stand for little fountains. They are soft spots. They also also call them soft spots. And they contain a membrane or mesenchyme. That's the place where the sutures will develop later. And thanks to that is that the brain still can grow in volume. There are some of these fontanelles that we can recognize, and we see this also in the lab in some models that we have of fetal skulls. The anterior fontanelle, which is in between the frontal and parietal bones, Oops, up here. The posterior fontanelle between the parietals and occipital. And a couple of lateral fontanelles, where the temporal, parietal, and occipital connect is posterior lateral and where the frontal, parietal, and temporal connect, anterolateral fontanel. That's what we see from a lateral view. Dr. Ramon, yes. When does the, the skull finally fuse in? Is it around the same time as the long bones for children, like 18 to 20 years? Um, more like from 8 to 10 years old, eight to 10. this volume is complete. And from there, it's still not completely fused, but they don't expand more than that. Because at birth, usually the proportion of the head, the size of the head in relation to the whole body, is like 1 to 5, 1 to 6 probably. But then on adults, it's like 1 to 8 and 1 to 7. So meaning that the body will grow more than the head. You see the babies are all big, big hats. <laughs> I'll take a look at them again and see, oh, that's true. Uh, but then adults, then we have the adult proportional size. Uh, these fontanelles, they are present for the first two years. And after the first two years of age, they disappear. They disappear, they're replaced by cartilage, and little by little they start the bones start getting together. From uh, here we see the fontanelles, comparison uh, fetal or newborn and uh, an adult skulls. We can see the anterolateral, posterolateral, the anterior fontanelle, the posterior fontanelle. This anterior fontanelle is particularly important because it's part of the physical examination. When we get the kids, or newborns especially, or infants, or younger than two years, the first year usually. One of the places that we look for is here, especially if they have some infection or fever, uh, because if this feels like tense, that may mean that there is something going on inside the cranium. And you can feel that membrane there. There's no bone there. This is amazing. You just touch a membrane, and under that membrane, you find the meninges and the brain. Um, we use this as a window for performing ultrasound also. We place the, the device here, and since it's a window, it's just a membrane, no bone, we can easily see inside. 
But then um, you, you see how they get fused in adults and um, they turn completely in sutures. And that's how it looks. Well, actually, some babies, they show these very big fontanelles. Sometimes it'd be scary. You touch them and it's like, oh. And they, when they cry, it just bulges like, touch them, increases the pressure there. It's kind of scary sometimes. Bunny plates means, and that's something that, that happens, the frontal bone actually, during development, it's composed by two halves. It's just a left and right frontal bone. But then after when the uh, fontanelles disappear, the frontal bone turns in only one. And there's no suture here in the middle. So that's why at the end in adults, there's only one frontal bone. But during the development, we see actually two frontal bones. And that's what we call as the bony plates. And that's also useful because during birth, the membrane in between the bones that is now fused where the bone skull is supposed to be supposed to be like this aligned but then when the head of the baby goes through the birth canal the vaginal canal you can easily see the skull bones making this overlapping like this one on top of the other so they can get squeezed a little bit so they can fit into and and come through and if there were if they were fused completely you can imagine this birth would not be possible That's how a bulging fontanelle sometimes looks. If this is found in some kid with fever, that is a very, very terrifying situation. That may mean that there's meningitis developing inside. Now that we're talking about the skull bones, uh, let's talk about this paranasal sinuses. What are paranasal sinuses? Uh, the word sinus stands for cavities, spaces. Nasal for the nose. Paranasal next to the nose. So cavities next to the nose. Uh, and there are four bones that have spaces inside their structure. Sinuses. And those bones are frontal, ethmoid, sphenoid, and maxilla, or maxillary bone, which is a bone of the face. These spaces, they contain specialized membranes of respiratory mucosa, cells, glands, that will be producing fluid and mucus all the time. And the point is to maintain this moisten, all the nasal mucosa inside, moisten and, and uh, not dry with the respiration. So, there are four bones that have these spaces or sinuses. We see some of them here. The sphenoid bone have these sphenoid sinuses. And when you get the sphenoid bone next time in the, in the lab, you will see some of them, see these cavities. The ethmoid, it has many small spaces or cavities in, in its structure, and they are called the ethmoidal cells. The moidal sinus, those spaces are smaller. And the other two bones are the frontal and, max, and maxilla or maxillary bone. 
And you see the comparison of, uh, of the sizes here, the fronton and maxillary sinus. Which is bigger, maxillary sinus? Here, where your cheek is, right behind or below the eye, this is the maxillary bone. And inside there is a big space. There's a big space where it's occupied by air, actually, but it's lined by a membrane that produces mucus, fluid, and uh, keeps all the inside of the nasal cavity moistened. And since it's a space of air, it serves to reduce weight in the skull. It warms the air that we breathe, and it helps as a resonance chamber for the voice. When we speak, our voice resonates inside these cavities. If you notice, people that have very loud voice and low tones, they usually have big prominences here on top of the eyebrows that belong to the frontal bone. And they're usually prominences of the frontal sinuses. And it helps for more resonance for, the, for their voice and also the face. So four bones have these spaces called paranasal sinuses. Sometimes we are in trouble with the sinuses and this is what we call sinusitis because these spaces uh, they are connected to the nasal cavity. They have a small orifices, connections, and that's where the mucus and fluid they produce, they drain into the nasal cavity. But when we get like a respiratory infection, and sometimes we, we notice that we blow our noses and sometimes we get a lot of mucus, and we say, where is this mucus coming from? It's a, it's a lot. Where is coming from your sinuses, from the frontal sinus, maxillary sinus especially. But it's as a part of the infection, these little drainage points get obstructed. And then the mucus inside gets trapped and start compressing against the walls. And you start having headaches, facial pain, accompanied by fever. And it makes sometimes a very bad situation that lasts for many weeks. That has treatment that's usually long, takes some time for the infection there to be controlled by antibiotics. Um, and it may be dangerous if the infection gets chronic. You can understand, it's inside the skull bones. If the infection goes through the bones, they, it can reach your brain. That doesn't happen usually, but it may happen in some rare case. So this is the example of the arch to represent the sphenoid bone and the function of the sphenoid bone. It's like a keystone. In architecture, when people study architecture, this is one of the main structures that they study and uh, make calculations and angles and degrees and curves, radius, etc. That's where the, the word architecture comes from, the study of the arch. In this case, the sphenoid is a keystone. The sphenoid is the one connecting all the rest of the bones of the skull. Frontal, parietal, temporal, occipital. And it's actually supporting all the weight and is distributed equally um, in the whole skull. Sphenoid looks like a butterfly. And actually there are some of these markings that are called wings. Greater wings and lesser wings. In the sagittal section, we can see the sphenoid bone. 
and the spaces inside are the sphenoid sinuses or sinus maybe two or more sometimes of these spaces here we can also see them sphenoid sinuses and this is the greater wind and the lesser wind on top of it now people when they describe these bones initially I think they have a very rich imagination to give and assign different names you know, sometimes there are funny names when you translate this these words and what they mean sometimes it's uh, uh, kind of funny so here we, we have some views this is a superior view and all these bone markings that we see the best way to study this is to have the bones in your hands so I'm not going to describe every single of these of these bone markings but what you have to do, as I said, is check the list of bones, check the list of bone markings, get the bones, and start identifying one by one, getting familiar with them. Uh, you can take pictures, label them after in PowerPoints or on your computer. There are many different ways of, of practicing for this, um, to learn the bones. The sphenoid bone is one of the bones that have all these foramina that we described before, foramen rotundum. Foramen ovale, spinosum, and each of these holes serve a different purpose. The frontal bone, the easiest of, the, of all, because it's only one big plate. What we have to know about this? The supraorbital margin. Very easy to remember is on top of the orbit, supraorbital margin. The supraorbital foramen or foramen. Here we have a little hole. It's right here. There's a little hole here. If you press here, not so hard, but firmly, you can feel exquisite pain. And that's because you're compressing the nerve that is coming out through that foramen or that foramen. What is that nerve for? The nerve is provided sensitivity to all this part, all the skin of the scalp and the, and the forehead. People that have migraine, sometimes they recognize this as a painful point. And you give massage here and you find it here and they jump and say, wow, we're touching the nerve. It's irritated in these cases of migraine. And that's it. I think the, 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 the frontal bone, as I said, is one of the easiest. You just have to uh, identify a couple of bone markings. But the sphenoid is more, is more challenging than, than the frontal. Temporal is another bone that requires some time to see it. I recommend you to study these bones in the skull and also as individual bones. Yes? Yeah, yeah, there are connections. This, uh, this, this nerve is actually connected to some part of the brain that is like a reaction, like a reflex. You apply some pressure here, you can generate different type of reactions. Uh, it's useful as massage in people with migraine, if properly applied. It's also used for, as you say, for pain from the sinusitis, or, and it, can, it actually can help sometimes, yeah. Okay, questions, comments to this point?